In my place condemned, he stood. The biblical pattern of atonement. And this morning, I know this is kind of a Horban title, The Outworking of the Cross, God's Aggressive Attack on the Kingdom of Satan. I was itching just to share a wonderful, powerful, hope-filled, and I think neglected study on the atonement. We're going to look at a group of texts themed around Christ's victory over Satan through his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And I hope you noticed how I worded that sentence, because I think there's a common misconception that you have to pick and choose which theory of the atonement you're going to endorse. And of course, the idea that Jesus bears God's wrath carrying my sins to the cross sounds uh, a little less acceptable in modern ears. And so we've adopted to the idea that, well, the Bible also talks about Christ's death being an example. We looked at that last Sunday morning. The Bible also talks about Christ's death being a victory over Satan. And it does. And those things are all true. I want to demonstrate, I hope, a link between Christ as example, Christ as victor, and Christ as substitute. I was sitting at a wedding reception a few years back, and Providence smiled upon me. And I was actually sitting right beside a fellow pastor, a theologically-minded friend with whom those table moments could be shared. He's a keen thinker around the things of God, and I kind of enjoyed chatting with him about different things. And we bantered back and forth about what each of us was reading. And in the conversation, I happened to mention a slew of authors with whom I was kind of growing weary most of them harmless enough dealing with the kind of trendy stuff that passes away as quickly as it makes money. When was the last time you had a deep discussion about the shack or the Da Vinci Code? Most of the big sellers these days major more on quick money, current interest, and fairly shallow theology. But every once in a while, a group of writers isn't quite that harmless and they wade into foundational values of the Christian life. And many times in recent years, they, they've kind of reinterpreted the atonement in ways that are a little easier for our culture to adapt and, ex and accept. And so I mentioned a few of these authors to my friend and said that I'd kind of had my fill of them. And he surprised me with his response, at least sort of surprised me. He said, I think they've served their purpose, he said. We've gone maybe a bit overboard on the idea of substitutionary atonement. After all, he said, there are other models of atonement in the Bible. Christ suffered as our example, First Peter, we looked at that. Christ died as victor over Satan. It's not all about, you know, Christ bearing God's wrath as a substitution for my sin. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not that my friend 
doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as the atoning substitute lamb of God. I know he believes that. But I was left kind of thinking, really, I mean, are these other images different views of the atonement? Are they standalone concepts of the atonement? Or are they maybe the logical outworkings of the foundational conviction that Jesus died on the cross bearing my punishment for sin? And that's what I want to say today. I think my friend's words can at least be misleading. It's not that what he was saying was untrue. It's that his point could be very misleading, missing something very important. True. There are different ways of describing the atonement in the New Testament. I don't think anybody in his right mind should deny it. Christ as example especially in the face of unjust treatment. Christ as our victor over Satan, a precious truth stated with repetition in the New Testament. My understanding is that these aren't theories separate from substitutionary atonement. They're the outplaying, the effects, the glorious results of that central theme that Christ died as the Lamb of God, or as Paul says, our Passover lamb, very specifically. So these other descriptions, example, victor, they presume, they rely on substitutionary atonement for their validity. We've already studied Peter's reference to Christ's suffering as our example. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins, but, but the example rests on the foundation that Christ bore our sins, 1 Peter 2.24. So, in other words, the call to follow Christ as our example and shepherd rises out, out of the already established fact that we've been redemptively healed of our deeply ingrained sinfulness through the uniqueness of Christ's atoning death. In other words, the call to follow our Lord's example doesn't just hang there in empty space, dawn, Try to be like Jesus. If you can, that'd be really nice. No, the call to follow Jesus as example grows out of the liberating theology of substitutionary atonement. In other words, it's the reality of the liberating, redemptive power of Christ's death on the cross that makes it even remotely possible for me to follow Christ's example. Otherwise, that's a, a demand I can't reach. So today, what I want to do is say exactly the same thing about those passages that so powerfully paint Jesus Christ as tearing down the strongholds of Satan through his cross. And I want to argue that that victory over Satan isn't just the result of some cosmic arm wrestling match where Jesus is stronger than Satan. The victory of Christ comes through the same theology of substitutionary atonement. Point number one. Jesus' first act of public ministry was to stand firm and victorious at the very point where Adam fell to Satan in defeat. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, look at Luke chapter 4. 
verses 1 to 6. We study in our church. Luke 4, 1 to 6. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. I give it to whom I will. Now here, I think, it's very easy to miss the forest for the trees when we read of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I mean, there's obviously something really important happening in this account because it's recorded with vivid detail, added facts, added dimensions in all the synoptics. This account is repeated in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So there's obviously something really important here. Very significantly, Luke, Luke places the account, the temptation account, it's in chapter 4, and he places it immediately on the heels of, of course, the chapter divisions aren't there in the original manuscripts. It comes immediately on the heels of chapter 3. And in those verses, which we usually skip over in our devotional reading, because they're boring, the genealogies. But I think if you think about it, you'll see something really interesting. Why would Luke take all that time in a computerless age? Think about it for a minute. Luke is a medical doctor. Why would he take all that account? He certainly didn't figure out all this detailed research as quickly as we can read it, just to show us the link between Jesus and Adam. That's what, that ha that's what happens in chapter 3. Jesus traced back to Adam. And there's only one reason. There's a reason after showing the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam, and immediately it goes into the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And the, and the reason is this. He wants all of us to have it in our head that Jesus faces this temptation from Satan as the second Adam. Jesus faces this temptation in the wilderness as my representative. So in other words, Jesus, in his very first public role after his baptism and the Holy Spirit anointing him for ministry, the very first thing Jesus wants to do he desires to pick up the baton that Adam dropped. Only Jesus won't drop it. Where Adam failed, 
and was defeated by Satan, Jesus wins the battle with temptation. Hear it, church. The chain of failure and the chain of defeat ended with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. There's absolutely no doubt that Satan saw himself as the ruler of this planet up to this time. 4-6. Look at those words. I will give you this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So think about what's happening here. Those are very powerful words. Satan has good reason for confidence. He has had an absolutely flawless record in tempting and deceiving and destroying lives ever since the fall in the garden. For thousands of years, Satan has pitched nothing but no hitters, no defeats. And now he comes with the very same plan of attack that has given him the most successful record on planet Earth. There's no idea in Satan's mind other than the continuation of his unblemished, unquestioned record. Everyone has fallen. But things will be different. Things will be different with Jesus right from the start. Matthew includes a wonderful little detail that Luke leaves out. It has to do with how this session with Satan finishes. I love it. In Matthew's account, after the temptation, Jesus sends Satan packing. It's in Matthew 4.10. Look at these words. Uh, yeah, Jesus said to him, Luke doesn't record this. Be gone, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord. And him only shall you serve. Be gone. I love that sentence. Away. There's no doubting who's in charge here, right? There's no doubting who's in charge here. I love that blunt command. Yes, Jesus is the one being tempted, but he's also the one controlling the shots. Adam's tumble in the Garden of Eden is being reversed right now, right off the bat. I can't leave that account without pausing over one more thing. It's something I, I had missed for years. I mean, I've actually preached sermons on how Christians should meet temptation following lessons from Christ in this account. And I'm sure there's mileage there, but I no longer think that that's the main point anymore. There are some striking and blessed distinctions in this account. And here's one of the chief ones. For you and me, Temptation comes seeking us. We're not looking for it. We're trying to avoid it as Christians. We've even been taught to pray. Lead us not into temptation. And that's how we should pray. We don't want to be there. But notice, that's totally different from what's happening in our text. All the synoptics are careful to point out that Jesus is being taken not away from temptation, but right into the thick of it. In very striking language, Mark actually says Jesus was, this is the word, driven 
by the Spirit into the wilderness. Wow. That stark language is really precious and really instructive. This temptation didn't just happen to Jesus. Satan didn't come to Jesus. You behold our victor attacking temptation. Behold our representative. Remember the second Adam, Luke's genealogies. The second Adam immediately going on the offensive to overturn everything that Adam lost in the garden. The very first act of Jesus in ministry is an act of aggression. It's an act of war against the tempter's best efforts and the tempter's chief weapon. It's not accidental that Jesus is there. He's driven there by the Spirit. But what about our subject? What does all this talk of Jesus as victor have to do with the substitutionary atonement on the cross? And really, it's everything. Do you remember that lamb killed the Passover in Egypt? We studied those texts for weeks. Do you remember the one killed on the Day of Atonement? These lambs had to be without blemish for the sacrifice to be effective. Follow this all the way through. Jesus' complete sinless victory over Satan's work means Jesus didn't die on the cross for his own sins. He had no sin. It means he was carrying someone else's sins on the cross. It has to mean that. He died carrying my sins. He died carrying your sins. He needed that victory to be that sinless sacrifice, that lamb without blemish. And that leads to the second point I want to look at. Point number two, more than any gospel writer, John links together Jesus' sinless death with his victory over the powers of darkness. Look this up if you have a Bible in any shape or form. John 14, 27 to 31, because there's something unusual in this text that I hadn't seen for a long time. John 14, 27 to 31. Jesus is the speaker. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, speaking to his disciples. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. Now, here's the, here. For the ruler, the ruler of this world is coming. My pen's not marking very well anymore. Then he says, he has no claim on me. That's the sinless aspect again. Jesus didn't fall to temptation. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. 
but I do as the Father has commanded me. What, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to give his life. Okay? So that the world may know that I love the Father. And then, rise, let us go from here. It's part of the conversation. Leading up to the confrontation with Judas and the soldiers in the garden. But you need to read those words carefully, more carefully than I had for a long time. Jesus is talking about his coming death, but he's doing it in very guarded terms. He tells them he's going away, 28. He's going to the Father, 28. He talks about doing as the Father commanded, 31. An event that will be so public and so visible that the world may know that I love the Father, 31. He's talking about his death on the cross and what a huge event that's going to be. That's how he's leaving. So the peace Jesus is going to give his disciples, 27, clearly isn't just peace of mind. It's, it's peace with God that only his death can purchase and sustain. And it will come as a result of the Spirit's work as Jesus continues the whole distance of his obedience to the Father. That much is pretty obvious on the surface of the passage. But there's something weird here. Two very strange details that you probably haven't thought of either. First, I hadn't noticed before the strange way in which Jesus talks about the ruler of this world in verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you. The ruler of this world is coming. Now, Jesus had already had many direct encounters with Satan, including the one in the wilderness that we just talked about, and certainly in the demonic realm. Satan was already present, working, visible in so many ways. So what does he mean? In what sensible way can we interpret those words where Jesus says, he's coming? I mean, we've seen him over and over again in the Gospels. He's there. What do you mean he's coming? Coming where? Coming to whom? And I think the answer to this first strange detail is found in a second strange detail. Notice how this account wraps up. It's in 31, where Jesus, after saying all this, he says, rise, let us go from here. There's the command from Jesus. Only here's the weird thing. Arise, let us go from here. And nobody moves. Nobody moves an inch. I'd never noticed that before. They all just sit there. Jesus keeps teaching. You, can, you don't have to take my word for it. Trace your finger quickly down over the paragraphs. See it for yourself. Turn the pages through chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. Jesus is still talking and nobody's going anywhere. Then in chapter 18, verse 1, they finally leave. Jesus takes his disciples straight to the garden. You know the story. The details gain momentum from that point. Jesus knows Judas is coming with a guard of soldiers. 
But just as he faced Satan in the wilderness, Jesus doesn't just sit and wait with his disciples. He takes the initiative. He goes, he goes first to the garden, so he will be there when the others arrive. Just like Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to go after Satan. Do you see the, the parallel here? He takes the initiative. He goes, he's going to be at the garden first. He will be there ready when Judas arrives. Now, don't lose track here. Back to strange detail number one. I deserted it. Jesus telling his disciples that Satan was coming. Remember? 31. Somehow, Satan was coming, and Jesus told his disciples they were to arise and go to meet him. Just just as Jesus was driven by the Spirit to initiate the attack upon Satan in the wilderness. Here's what I think. John takes great care building his account carefully. He told us earlier that Satan had entered into Judas in 1327. Then after he had taken the morsel, that's Judas, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. This is the sense. This is what Jesus meant when he said, he's coming. Satan is coming. The evil one is coming. Specifically at this crucial moment of betrayal and crucifixion. Substitutionary atonement. So Jesus tells his disciples that Satan is coming, and then he says, we have to arise and go out to meet him. So again, there'll be confrontation. The disciples are confused. They mistakenly think that victory depends on the use of the sword. Peter will try to take one of their heads off, but he'll end up with just an ear. I'm showing the link now, victor and substitutionary atonement. That's not how victory is going to come, Peter. We're not going to win this with swords over Satan. Jesus will conquer Satan, not by hand-to-hand -hand combat. He will destroy him by dying as the sinless sacrifice for our sins. That's why Jesus stresses again that even as Satan comes, John 14, 30, he has no claim on me. He does on you. He does on you. And he does on you. He does on every one of you. You might not feel it. He has a claim on every one of you. But Jesus says, not on me. Not on me. He has no claim on me. I was victorious in the wilderness. I've been victorious every time. He has nothing on me. I am the perfect Passover lamb. I can do what none of you can do, none of you can do, none of you can do, none of you can do. I can do this, Jesus says. This is huge, church. This is big. The picture of Christ's death as a victory over Satan 
isn't a separate idea from his death as our substitute, bearing our sins and the justice of God. Three. We still need a full explanation as to how the atonement is the path to Christ's victory and ours over the kingdom of Satan. Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The same things are flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one. Who's this? The one. Who is this? Say it loud. It's Satan. This passage is answering our question, clear as anything, that through death, whose death is this? That's Jesus' death. How is he going to destroy Satan? Is he just going to beat him over the head with a club? No. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Why does he have the power of death? Well, because the wages of sin is, and we are all sinners, sinners. But it's not just that he gets a victory. He will destroy the ones of power who has the power of death, that is the devil. And we're in this, church. Deliver all. This is a big victory. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't slavery a terrible thing? You hear a lot about it. It was us too, slaves. The text underscores the general truth that it is Christ's death that destroys the power of the devil. There's the victory. That much, at least, is stated in 14. How does Christ's death do it? Well, we need some specifics. In explanation, verse 15 tells us that when Christ, by his death, destroyed the power of the devil, he did it by delivering us from something. From what? Well, from the fear of death that held us all in lifelong slavery. So Christ, by his death, gives us victory over lifelong slavery. There's victory, victory over Satan, deliverance for us. But why were we so afraid of death? Why were we so afraid of death? We need to look at the rest of the book of Hebrews to get to the bottom of this. We know that when Christ died, he was offered once for the sins of many, 928. He died for the purification of our sins, 217. He died to be the propitiation for the sins of the people. So by removing the guilt of our sins and the just wrath of God against those sins, Jesus removes us from this realm of the fear of death. And that fear was a very genuine fear because, because we all have to die. The Bible says, 927, Hebrews, it's appointed for men and women to die. You may miss a lot of appointments in life. Set your alarm on your smartphone. 
This is an appointment you will not miss. You won't be late. There's an appointment. But we don't have to fear it anymore. This is what Satan held over our heads. We know we're sinners. We know we're mortal. We know we face judgment. We know there's a creator, that he's holy. This is what keeps us from experiencing peace with God. That fear, condemnation, guilt, estrangement from God, and the divine judgment, all of that is what Jesus removed. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly in my place. The one I couldn't fulfill. The one Adam didn't fill. The second Adam did. Here's what it means, church. I'd like to give you some really good news this rainy, gray Sunday morning. And here it is. There is no judgment left for me when I'm in Christ Jesus. I don't know how to... I ought to have to work to keep you from dancing in the aisles. There is no judgment left for me when I am in Christ Jesus. That is the link between Christ as victor over Satan and the fear that he holds over our heads and being purified by the substitutionary atoning death. There's no victory without it. The victory isn't just feeling a little better in my soul. The victory is having actual, real, sinful guilt removed. So the conclusion of the matter, yes, I'm almost done. Is the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is what accomplishes victory over Satan. Satan's power to condemn is gone. We no longer fear death, it's gone. We no longer fear the just wrath of God, it's borne by Christ. We have a new Lord. We have a new master. So Christ as victor, Christ as sacrifice aren't two different pictures of the cross. They're one and the same picture. So don't ignore Christ's divine, wrath-defeating, death-defeating, Satan-defeating sacrifice on the cross. The victory comes via the atonement. Those are the biggest ideas that the church has to have a good understanding of. It's not enough to have just a general concept. We need to know the details. We need to know the details. We need to know how this works. And everyone said, bow your heads just for a sec, would you? Maybe, maybe when I labored that long, you probably don't, remember all the details, but you might be here today wondering why it is that churches like this say you can only be saved through Jesus Christ, no other religion. And the reason is simply what we've been talking about this morning. You know you're a sinner. You know because you don't even live up to the dictates of your own conscience that you're a sinner. And what we're saying here is there was no other sinless sacrifice offered for your sins. 
except Jesus, God the Son, who died on the cross. You will never be able to just sort of follow the example of Jesus, try to be a nicer person. It won't work. You need someone who defeated Satan, who bore your sin, and it gives you peace with God. That is only found in Jesus Christ. That is only found in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, but I'm, I'm interested to see if there's someone here who says, oh, I get it. I didn't see it before. That's why Jesus died. That's what it accomplished. And if that's you, just, would you just wave at me for a minute while Christians are praying for you? Thank you, I see it. Yep, thank you, I see it. Yes, I see it. Yep, I see it. Good, at the back. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Anybody else? Can I pray for you? Thank you. I see it on my right. Good. Anybody else? We're all going to pray. And I'm going to invite you who raised your hands, maybe others. We're all going to pray just to help you make a good confession of faith in Jesus Christ. So all together and say it strongly. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is true. I'm a sinner. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sins, my judgment, when you died on the cross. And the victory that that gives me. Renew my mind. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.